0: You're welcome to have a seat. Well, good morning. It's a beautiful, sunny day outside, but uh, unfortunately, we do have a lot of people sick, as Deemer mentioned. So, um, do keep everyone in your prayers. And, uh, but it's good to see half of you here. So, um, it's a good morning. It's always a good morning when we're worshiping the Lord. And as that video showed, we should be worshiping him everywhere in everything we do. Okay, we're in the middle of a series. Uh, We're going to pick back up with our series now through the book of Acts. Um, The series is called He Reigns. The book of Acts is basically, it picks right up with the ministry of Jesus after he's ascended. Jesus continues his ministry through his church, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people. And so what we see after um, the Gospels is the advent of the church age, and that's what the book of Acts is all about. The Holy Spirit moving through his people, the church, and the focus as we've been going through this series with, uh, with our title is, is God's sovereignty over that. God is sovereign over the spread of the gospel and the growth of his church. And so we've been in Acts and um, today we're going to pick right up where we left off a few weeks back, which is in Acts chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there if you would. Acts chapter 6, verse starting in verse 8. Now today, we have a very large section of Scripture that we're going to be reading through. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through 7, verse 53. So we've got a gigantic section of Scripture to cover today. So today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be reading through the passage as we preach through the sermon. And so it's kind of a, a running commentary, if you will. so keep your Bibles open uh, for the whole sermon. Sometimes we have a tendency to you know have the passage read, and then we kind of close our Bible and just listen and uh, And even in our small group on, on Wednesday night, we talked about how even even hearing the word it should be a discipline and it's a, this is supposed to be an interactive experience. It's not just me up here giving a speech. okay this is preaching and it's receiving proclamation of the word, and the receiving of the word. So this is an interactive thing that happens on Sunday morning. So uh, so keep your Bibles open and listen as we go through this passage. I've entitled today's passage, The Trial of Stephen and the Guilt of Israel. And we'll read, uh, start reading it here in a second. Now, what we're getting to is the section of Scripture, you may be familiar with the book of Acts, you may not, where Stephen um, is put on trial. He's preaching the gospel powerfully, as we'll re- read here in a second. And he's, he's put on trial. And this trial of Stephen and the subsequent martyrdom of Stephen serves as a turning point in the book of Acts in many different ways. Uh, first of all, there's a transition or a turning point in the way the gospel is being received by the people. Up until this point, for the most part, the people in Jerusalem have been very tolerant of the Christians and have, um, have actually had a very good, good and high view of the church. Now, the, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders didn't have that great a view of the church, but for the most part, the people viewed the church in a very positive light. But we've seen persecution begin to increase, and there's, this is the third trial now. We're only six chapters into the book, and this is the third trial. In the first trial, where Peter and John were brought before the council, they were just warned sternly. They were threatened, really, not to preach the gospel anymore. In the second trial... The apostles were beaten, and so we see this increased level of of animosity towards the gospel, and and in this passage here, it really takes a turn towards uh, martyrdom, towards the death of Stephen, as we'll see here, and this begins a level of persecution the church has not experienced yet. So that's the first sort of transition that we see. We also see in this story, although we're nearly not going to talk about him today, the introduction of a a new uh, person, a new character in the story here, a guy by the name of Saul, who would later change his name to Paul. He was part of, the, part of that wave of persecution that hit the church. And if you know the story, he is converted and becomes the apostle really to the Gentiles, which really marks the other transition here. As we've seen up to this point that in the book of Acts, the focus has been the evangelization of the Jews in Jerusalem. And from this point forward in the book of Acts, we see a transition and we begin to see the evangelization of the Gentiles. We begin to see the gospel break out of its Jerusalem Jewish context and spread as God wanted it to in Acts 1.8, spread to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God is now beginning to move them beyond the confines of Jerusalem, beyond their Jewish roots even. And consequently, from this point forward, there will be questions there will be a tension, really, about how Jewish law, how traditions, how the temple play into this new covenant reality, this new church age. How does, how does all that stuff fit in? And so there's tension, really, from this point forward in Acts, and there's this struggle with how much of the law do we keep? Do we keep all the law? It's, what about the temple? And, what, and we see these tensions beginning to start even in this passage here today. So... Today's text, really, um, with that in mind, is about shadows. And it's about breaking free from the love of, or really the worship of, shadows. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is what Colossians 1, I mean 2:17, says, and it, talking about the, the Old Testament law, talking about the temple, talking about all that has been passed on uh, to us from the Old Testament, It says these are shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament, the temple, the Old Testament law, all the things, these stories we read in the Old Testament are shadows, foreshadowing the coming of Christ. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, everything is a foreshadowing of Christ. And so what we see here in this passage really uh, has to do with breaking free from or not loving the shadows more than the substance. And so... Just to kind of illustrate it here this morning, let me get oh one or let's just get one kid to help me out. So raise your hands, and the first hand I see when I turn around, I'll call on you. All right, Tanner, come on up here. All right, I want you to hold the trying to spoil. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, buddy. Okay, for me. Yeah. All right, now oh wait, there's already these lights casting shadows here, but I've got a flashlight here. And hopefully it works. And I'm going to cast the shadow here of the cross. And really what the Old Testament is... well there's lots of shadows because... All right, turn over here a little bit. No, no, that way. There we go. All right. Okay, I'm going to cast the shadow of the cross here. And really, you know, the farther away the light gets, the harder it is to see the shadow, really. But the closer the light gets, the more the shadow comes into focus and we can understand what it really is. And the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the cross, and to a certain degree, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what God's doing in the Old Testament. But they had faith, and they trusted, and they believed in, in what he was telling them. And, and so there's this foreshadowing of the cross. And as the cross gets closer and closer and closer, and finally when Jesus comes, I'm going to hold the cross up there. Once the cross is all the way right there, the shadow disappears, and the shadow is no longer necessary. We have the real thing. And what we see in the Old Testament here is this foreshadowing of the cross. I better turn that off so I don't flash in everyone's eyes there. The foreshadowing of the cross, and now the substance, the cross. Jesus has come, and the shadows are no longer necessary. Matter of fact, what we're seeing happen, what we'll see happen in today's text, let me, let me do a shadow of something else here, a banana, all right? Now, you'll understand here in a second, but let's say I told one of the kids out here, hey, would you like a banana? And to get you really, okay, I'm glad you do. I wasn't really asking. That was just, anyway. And, and to get you excited about the banana, I'm just going to cast a shadow of it so you can already get hungry. and You're going to want that banana. And you start, you kids, you start looking at that shadow and mm, you can't wait for that banana. You want that banana bad. And you, oh, and every time you look at that shadow, it just reminds you of how tasty that banana is going to be. And let's say I came and finally said, all right, you don't have to, to be satisfied with the shadow anymore. I'm going to give you the real banana. And you say, no, 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 I'm going to keep looking at the shadow. That looks so tasty. I want the shadow. But here, I've got the real banana for you. And you say, no, I want the shadow. I just want to keep looking at the shadow. And what we see is happening in, in Jerusalem and in this text here today is that the people love the shadow more than the substance. And so have a seat for me, Tanner. And uh, you, do you like bananas? Um, not especially. Okay, I'll just leave it here then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> All right, what we see in this text today is the people have fallen in love with the shadows. And they love the shadows, and they want the shadows, and they get angry when you begin to say that, hey, there's something better than the shadow here now. The substance has come. And it gets violent when when Stephen here begins to challenge their love of the shadow. So I want us to go through... This text here today. It's really sort of a courtroom drama. I I love courtroom dramas, um, Law and Order, um, those kind of shows, and the old Perry Masons. And I never really watched Matlock that much, but you know Matlock, those kind of guys. And um, and so we kind of have a courtroom drama going on here today. And so I kind of want to treat it that way. First thing I want to look at as we walk through this text here today. First thing is we need to look at the accused, the accused. So look at verse eight. Go ahead and turn to chapter 6, verse 8 of the book of Acts. And the accused is a guy by the name of Stephen. Now, before we read that text there, Stephen is one of the seven, if you remember, who was chosen in our last sermon through Acts. He was one of the seven who was chosen to help administrate the distribution of the food to the widows and administrate the finances of the early church. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, according to verse 5. And we pick it up in verse 8, and it says, And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen is the first non-apostle that we read of to perform any sort of signs and wonders. It says in verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and, of the, uh, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, those people that are mentioned there are Hellenists. They're Hellenist Jews. Now, if you remember from the last sermon, Stephen and all those who were chosen, kind of as the first prototype of deacons, all those who were chosen were Hellenists, meaning they were Jews, probably Greek-speaking Jews, who had grown up outside of Palestine, had lived most of their life, and had come back to Palestine. And so the Jerusalem was filled with synagogues of Greek-speaking Jews. And so Stephen here is disputing with Now, it's important because these are his friends. These very well may be the synagogues where he worshipped prior to converting to Christ. And now he's there with his friends trying to convince them of the Messiah. Verse 10, but they could not withstand. They're disputing him. And it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We see in Stephen that he was a bold man. He was filled with supernatural wisdom. He was living out 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And Stephen had the truth on his side. So, as always happens, when the truth is on your side, your enemies, and Stephen's enemies here, had had to come up with a different method. They came up with an ad hominem attack against him instead of the argument. So they're just going to attack him, and we see that they come up with some false accusations. So the next part of our courtroom drama is the accusation. So let's look at the accusation here, starting in verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. The word there is they violently took him and brought him before the council. Now pause right there. This is the same council that Peter and John and the apostles have appeared for. It's the Sanhedrin, the same council that that sentenced Jesus to die. And verse thirteen. And they set up false witnesses who said, "This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth." Will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, what's he being accused of here? He's being accused of two things basically one, being against Moses, and two, being against the temple. And if he's against Moses, that means he's against the law. Those two things go together. So, he's being accused of being against Moses and against the temple. Now, what were the grounds for these accusations? Uh, Do they have any grounds for these accusations? Well, Jesus did say in John 2.19, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so that's what everyone heard. Now, John clarifies in John 2.21 that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus' words were being twisted. They were twisted against him in his own trial in Matthew 26, verse 61. Um, and they were twisted even when he was on the cross. You remember Matthew 27? They came walking by and taunting him. You who said you would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down and save yourself. And they were, they were taunting Jesus. And little did they know that they were fulfilling the exact words he was saying as they were taunting him. They were destroying the temple. And he would raise it up again. In three days. So Jesus was talking about himself, but also, sort of in a roundabout, very real way, Jesus is also talking about the physical temple. Okay, because you remember what happened when Jesus died. The veil in the temple was torn in two. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin and that there's now no need for a priesthood. Jesus is the great high priest forever interceding for the saints. God no longer symbolically dwells in the temple. He dwells now with his people through his son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And so in a very real way, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system was destroyed when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again. So perhaps Stephen was preaching along these lines. He was exposing their love for the shadow. He was showing them the substance. Here's the substance, guys, and they didn't like it. They preferred the shadow. It's very interesting, the last verse of this section I just read says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's very interesting. Now, perhaps, perhaps what Luke means here is that the Holy Spirit has empowered Stephen with such confidence and, and such uh, wisdom that it just radiated from his, from his you know, attitude and from his countenance. But I think something else is going on here. Because I think every Jewish man who's sitting in that council, as they look and they see Stephen's face glowing, they, it reminds them of something else. It reminds them of Exodus 34 when Moses comes down off the mount after receiving the testimony and his face is shining from the glory of God. And that's what it's reminding them of. And Moses had to cover his face with a veil. And so as they see this, it's almost like God's giving them a forewarning. They should see this and know, wait a second here. God's telling us something about Moses and about the temple and about the law just by the face of Stephen. So let's continue with the trial here. Okay, now we get to the defense. The defense. Now, it may not seem like a good defense. Let me just put it this way, okay? When you read Stephen's defense here, it doesn't sound like a really good defense. But just like the good old courtroom dramas, you know, have you ever seen, you know, where the lawyer kind of goes off on a tangent? I don't think this happens in real life. But, you know, the lawyer will kind of go off and start, and the judge will say, you know, do you have a point here? You know, and, and it was like, just a second, Your Honor, I'm getting to my point. Now, I've only been on a jury once. And, I mean, anytime the lawyers even somewhat deviated from the facts of the case, you know, it was like, objection, you know, and they were shut down. But on, in the TV shows, okay, they get an opportunity to kind of go around about to come to their defense. And so what we're seeing here is Stephen has a defense, but it's not exactly what I think the people would have been expecting. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 7 here. And we'll read a a, a big section of it right now. Here we go. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers. Let me pause right there. Listen to the respect he's showing these men. Brothers and fathers. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father... Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died God removed him from there into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him Though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect. Sorry, I got lost there. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge that nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now let me stop right there. I really only have two points in your notes there, and they all involve Stephen's defense. The first thing I want us to see, first point of Stephen's defense, is that God reigns as he always has. God reigns as he always has, or God is reigning as he always has. What do I mean by that? Well, specifically, God reigns, and therefore he rules, and he is not bound to any location. He's not bound to any spot. He's not bound to any building. God rules. He works however he wants to, whenever he wants to, wherever he wants to. And Stephen makes that clear through this first part of his speech here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was where? In Mesopotamia. The temple wasn't that important, guys. Because God can appear to anyone, anywhere, and he appeared to our father while he's in Mesopotamia. God's glory, God's revelation, God's work is not bound by any location. God was with Abraham despite the fact that the Bible says here that not a foot's length of land was given to him. God was with him. God was, was He was intimately involved in Abraham's life. They had worship. They had communion despite the fact that they didn't own a foot length of land. And so God's not bound by the land. He's not bound by the location. The place God promised to bring them to was for the people, not for God. I'm going to give you a place to worship. God's not saying I need a place to do my work. The land was for the people, not for God. And it was for a shadow to point them to a greater land, to a greater city. God calls men unto himself, we see in this passage, not vice versa. Go out from the land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. God did not call Abraham because Abraham was special. Abraham was special because God called him. Okay, so God is the one. He's the one who rules. He's the one who reigns. Now, I want us to see here that God even had to kind of prod Abraham along. And this is the beginning of a theme in in Stephen's speech. It's the beginning of a theme here of, of, of rejection and and. Abraham doesn't reject God, but he needs a little bit of a prodding here, because he says, "Leave your kindred and go to the land that I will show you." And the Bible says in this passage here that he stops in Haran, right? He stops there until his father dies. So he took his kindred with him, and then he went to where he was supposed to go. So God prods Abraham along here. As a matter of fact, the word here that it used it says that he, God removed him from there and took him to the land where he was supposed to be kind of implies that God was kind of pushing him along here. Just come on, Abraham, get going where I want you to go. But God showed grace, and Abraham received that grace by faith. Abraham had faith in what he could not see, and these current Jews that Stephen is facing can see all that God has done, yet they don't have faith. And Abraham had faith in what he could not see. He had faith even though he didn't possess an ounce of land. Now, Stephen's not done with his defense here. Instead, he goes on to to show a disturbing pattern in the history of Israel. So let's pick it back up in verse 9. It says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on, their se- on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of silver, from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So we see, first of all, that God reigns as He's always reigned. And the second point I want us to see is that Israel rejects God as they always had. Israel rejects God as they always had. We'll see a pattern here, a disturbing pattern. First of all, but let's point out how God continues to reign. Notice that He's still at work, even though His people are where? They're not in the Holy Land, they're not in the temple spot, they're not in Jerusalem, they are in Egypt. He continues to work. He's not bound by any sort of location. Yet the patriarchs rejected the one that God had placed over them. Do you remember the story of Joseph? He has these dreams. Perhaps he didn't relay the dreams as well as he should have to his brothers, but he has these dreams that he will rule over his brothers and even his mother and his father. And, And they reject that. They're so angry. They hate what dreams that God's given Joseph. And so they push back against what God wants to do. They push back against who God has placed over them, and they try to kill Joseph. Yet, Joseph's life is spared. Uh, He ends up being sold into slavery, as you remember, and God is faithful even though Israel has, even though the patriarchs have rejected him. Matter of fact, he's faithful through their rejection. He uses their rejection as his means of being faithful to them. Which is amazing. And we see in all this that there's a picture of Christ. There's a foreshadowing of Christ in this passage here. Um, not only in the fact that Jesus, too, was, has been rejected by his people, and that through his rejection and crucifixion on the cross, we have salvation. Just like Joseph, it was through the rejection that his sal- that salvation came. We also see here an interesting couple of words that, that Stephen chooses to use. Notice here he talks about two visits. He says that they visited Joseph, and then it says on the second visit he made himself known to them. I don't think that that's uh, an accident on his part. He's using this word, and he'll use it again for Moses, because he wants them to see something about Christ. Christ has come now on his first visit, and on his second visit he will make himself known. You may still be embracing the shadow, you may still be embracing a false religion, but on his second visit he will make himself known. And if you have rejected him, and if you continue to hold him at arm's length, it will not be a good second visit for you. And so so he's here is setting up this picture of Moses, of, of Joseph being like Christ. So you see here this real defense that Jesus is that, that Stephen is giving isn't a defense of himself, it's really a defense of Christ, which we can apply to our lives as well. When people ridicule you or make fun of you or kind of put you on trial because of your faith. The answer isn't to defend yourself. The answer is defend the gospel. Defend the gospel. I can't defend myself. I'm too bad a sinner to defend myself. But I'll defend the gospel. And I'll stand up for the gospel. And so that's what Stephen's doing here. Really, this is a defense of the gospel. It's a defense of Jesus. But Stephen moves on from this Joseph as a picture of Christ to Moses. And we see the pattern again. So let's pick it back up in verse 17. It says, "But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Again, God's reigning, even though they're in Egypt. until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Now listen right there. They've accused him of being against Moses, and listen to how he talks about Moses. Beautiful. In God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And he was exposed. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart here it is, the same word again to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Okay. Notice what's happening here. Moses is leaving royalty. To visit his brothers who are in slavery. It's the picture of Christ. Christ leaves the royal throne of heaven to come visit us in our slavery and in our sin. It's a picture of Christ. So he visits his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, this is an important passage. How many of you guys in here learned, and Dean and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, how many of you guys in here learned, as I did when I was a kid, that Moses was a murderer? Anybody hear that? Moses was a murderer. I heard that in Sunday school. Moses was a murderer, but God used him anyway. That's kind of how it was always taught to me. Moses was a murderer, God used him anyway, so he can use you even though you tell little lies. All right? And that was kind of the, the moral lesson from Sunday school. But you know what? I don't believe, especially faith in, with this scripture, The best way to interpret Scripture is in the light of Scripture. With this Scripture added to what we have from the Old Testament, I don't believe Moses was sinning here. I don't believe he's sinning. He comes to visit his people. He sees his people being oppressed. He understands that God has made him the deliverer, the redeemer of his people, and he defends his people who are being oppressed and kills the Egyptian in the process. And And the blame is not put on Moses in this passage. It's put on the people for rejecting him after he did that. So I don't believe Moses is this evil murderer that we like to talk talk about him being when we have our Sunday school lessons. But let's continue. Verse 26. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, listen to this question, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? That's been Israel's attitude all along. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And they push back against what God's trying to do. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. Again, God's not a respecter of locations. Now we're in the wilderness. He's about to have holy ground right there in the wilderness. Holy grounds wherever God is. It's not a temple. It's not a location. It's wherever God's at work. So he's in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent, listen, as both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. Now... Moses has had his second visit. The first visit, they rejected him. Now he's there for his second visit. And he leads them out of Israel. And what we see here in verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles. Again, Stephen showing great respect for the law. Living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Now I want you to listen very closely as Stephen begins to increase the intensity of his sermon here. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in, listen closely, the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephan. The images that you made to worship, I will send you into, into exile, send you into exile beyond Babylon. So we continue to see God ruling, and we continue to see Israel rejecting, and this Moses was yet another ruler and redeemer that they had rejected, and God gives them over to what they want. They prefer things made by their own hands. It's called idolatry. They prefer things made by their own hands. Stephen continues in verse 44. Our fathers have a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he, as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen. Moses makes a tabernacle according to the pattern he had seen. Where did he see the pattern? God gave him the pattern because the tabernacle and the temple are a pattern of what's in heaven. So Moses sees the pattern. It's a shadow. It's a pattern. It's not the real thing. But he puts it up so the people can worship God. He he erects it just as God has told him to. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So what is, what is the temple? The tabernacle? It's this mobile thing that they're taking with them. Again, God is not a respecter of locations. God is everywhere. It's kind of like that commercial, can you hear me now? Can you worship me now? Yes, can you worship me now? Yes. How about over here? Yes, God is everywhere. He's not bound by a location. Verse 47, no, verse 46, talking about David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. God did not ask for a dwelling place. David asked for it. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses, listen to this, made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did Did not my hand make all these things? So what was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple, it was to be a place where God's presence with his people was made manifest. A place where they could come and make sacrifices to him. The temple was for the people. It was not for God. It was a foreshadowing. It was a symbol. And God was not confined to the temple and he never was. But the Israelites had turned the temple into something else. They had turned it into an idol. They had turned it into something they loved more than they loved God. Notice the three mentions of hands in this passage. Verse 41 And they made a calf, and they rejoiced in the work of their hands. And then verse 48 Yet the Most High does not dwell in a house made by hands. He's drawing a parallel here. Stephen is intentionally calling the temple the same thing as the calf. How offensive is that to the Jews? They're getting angry now. They hear him say, this calf made by hands, and then they hear him say that God's not, even though he's quoting scripture, live in a house made by hands, and they're getting angry. Wait a second here. But Stephen's absolutely right. He's saying, listen, you've turned the temple into an idol. It was made by your hands, but God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands. That wasn't the original purpose of the temple. But they're getting angry as they hear him accuse them, basically, of idolatry. Just as their forefathers had rejected God's Redeemer and Ruler, they had turned away from God and preferred the things made by their own hands. Yet now now again the pattern continues and they reject the new Moses, the perfect Redeemer and Ruler that Moses himself had predicted would come. And they love the temple made by their hands more than they love God. So what's the verdict? Okay, Every trial has to have a verdict. In this case... Stephen gives the verdict, and it's not his own verdict. He gives the verdict for them, kind of a la Perry Mason or, or um, uh, what was Matlock? He always wore the blue suits, right? It was Matlock, Andy Griffith. Okay, so you, you watch those shows, and he, gets some, he always gets the person who actually committed the crime on the stand somehow. Which always blows me away, you know. That, so they get the person actually committed the crime. So, and, he, and he starts weaving the story and comes back around. And there's always this aha moment where he catches the person on the stand and says, You're the guilty one. While his person over here is being defended. And the person's caught. In their own words, they're caught. And that's what's happening. Is an aha moment. This is the courtroom aha moment. Stephen's bringing it back around. And he's saying, You're the guilty one. By your own words, you've condemned yourselves. You are the ones guilty of rejecting Moses, rejecting the law, and rejecting the temple. You are the guilty ones. He turns it around in their face. And he gets kind of serious at this point in verse 55. Matter of fact, his tone changes, I imagine. Up until this point, he's been saying we. He's been talking about our fathers, our forefathers, our father Abraham. And he's been talking about us, we, brothers, fathers, is how he starts it off. And now he changes, and he's going to say, you. Because Stephen realizes the substance has come, and I'm embracing the substance. But you guys are going to continue to go down this path that we all went down. We all rejected God. Yes, we've all failed. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the substance is here now, and I've embraced it. But you, he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. What that means is refusal to bow. Stiff neck is, is the image of someone just not refusing to, to bow down. It's kind of like your kids when, you know, th- they get old enough and, and, you know, you get to an age where you just can't spank them anymore because you physically can't bend them over, you know? Like, come on, all right? And, and there's a stiff neck. Ugh. And that's kind of the image here these stiff necked people and God's just wanting to push them down, but they won't do it. They're stiff necked. You stiff necked people. Hope nobody's against spanking in here. Um, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He's calling these people uncircumcised. Okay, he's already assaulted them once, calling the temple a calf. Now he's saying you're uncircumcised. Of course, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about the, the the cutting away of the sinful desires of the heart. He's talking about receiving a new heart and a new mind. And these people are uncircumcised in their hearts and their ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's his aha moment. You are the ones guilty, not me. You are the ones guilty. Jesus spoke the same way in Luke 11 as he, he talks about how these people are the ones guilty. Even though they look back at their fathers, how they had killed the prophets, but they were guilty of the same sins. So what's Stephen's verdict? They're guilty of what they're charging him of. No, he had not rejected Moses. They had rejected not only Moses through their ancestors, they had rejected the one whom Moses predicted would come. They had rejected the Messiah. And they rejected the law because the law pointed to Jesus Christ. That's what, John, that's what Peter, Jesus tells us in John 5, 39. No, Stephen had not spoken against the temple. They had rejected Christ, the one who had come to replace the temple. They had rejected the new priesthood, the final sacrifice, God with us, Emmanuel. And instead, they had turned the physical temple into an idol. So he has this aha moment back in their face. They're the ones that are guilty. And their reaction? Well, we'll look at this a little bit more next week. But they're enraged. They don't like this guilty verdict that they've just received. They don't like this guy telling them this stuff. And unfortunately for Stephen, the jury was kind of rigged. All right, He really didn't have a shot going into this. Matter of fact, he probably knew. This is it. This is it for me. You know, there's Christians around the world that know that. As they walk into their accusers, even this day, that they're going to be executed for their beliefs. This is it. Stephen knew that. He knew this was rigged. okay. And so he looks up and he says, behold, in verse 56, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that did it. That was it. They rush him, they take him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Now you may be saying this morning, What? on earth does any of this have to do with us, <laughs> all right? I and mean, that's kind of how I felt first time, I've, you know, I've read this passage several times. But you read this passage and you're kind of like, man, this is just like Old Testament history. I know all this. I learned all this in Sunday school. And you get into it deeper and you say, wow, boy, he's really got a pointed argument here about the shadows and the substance. And what does it have to do with us, though? Well, first of all, we don't need to sit in judgment over the Israelites because they represent all of us. We all reject God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all in our sin have rejected Him only by God's work of grace in our hearts are we saved. And they love the shadows more than they love the substance. And you know what? We can still fall in love with forms, with symbolism. We fall in love. Maybe we don't have shadows anymore. We have reflections. So we do this. We do this because we love Jesus. And yes, so we sing songs. We we sit in chairs and we have sermons and we, we do stuff. But you know what? Sometimes, a lot of times, we get enamored with our systems and our our, our, our traditions. And we love the forms just as much as the Israelites did. And there's a danger there of falling in love with the forms instead of falling in love with the Savior. We must be guard against putting God in a box of our own making. God can only work in this type of church. God can only work if we do this, this, and this. That's what the Israelites were doing. They had put God into the box of their own making, and that's what we like to do. God only works in Southern Baptist churches, right? And we like to put God in boxes. Someone say, nope, out there, real loud, immediate, nope, all right. God is not bound by our boxes. Let's don't commit the sin of the Israelites and put God in a location. We must guard against falling in love with things made by our own hands. I think it's especially pointed for us as we're about to move into a new building. We're about to move into a building. God is not confined to the building. We know that. Everyone knows that, right? You teach your kids, we're not going to church. We are the church. That's what we always teach our kids. But we still have this mentality and we attach something special to buildings or something special to locations because we're sinners and we tend to do that. And we've got to guard against getting so excited about the things we do with our hands, the building or other things, that we lose focus of Christ. We lose focus on the one who made us with his hands. And it's very easy to do. I think there's application for us here today. And Jesus is coming for a second visit. And this is my last point of application. Jesus had his first visit. And he's coming for a second visit. And the Israelites with Joseph, and with Moses, even on the second visit, they pushed back against God. And there won't be a third chance. There won't be a third visit. And if you're here this morning and you've been pushing back against God all your life and you feel Him stirring in your heart this morning, my challenge is He's coming for a second visit. Submit to God, bend that stiff neck. Bow that knee and come to Jesus. Ask him to do a work in your heart that makes you the person that he's designed you to be, that he wants you to be. So this morning, as we think about this very long text, I want us to think about these points of application for us. What box are you putting God in today? What box are you putting God's work in today? What have you... Well, how have you limited God in your own thinking? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and let's praise the one who's coming again, and we'll sing one closing song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you right now, Lord, I thank you for this passage. Every passage of Scripture is so important, so valuable, um, so perfect, yet we get to big passages like this that are sometimes hard to understand or hard to preach. And so, God, I just pray that you take this jumbled mess of a sermon that I did this morning and, and sift it through, the, through the, your Holy Spirit and, and just give us the pure nutrition that we need from it. And forgive us of our sin and our failures and our mistakes that, that often remind us that we are just like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and we push back against you and we want Egypt. We want the world. We want sin. We want it so bad because our flesh loves it. So much, God, don't let us sit in judgment of these Sanhedrin Jewish leaders because had we been there, we would have been doing the same thing. Instead, God, let us like Stephen realize and recognize that you want to come and do a work in our heart. It's only by your grace. And Father, we pray that Jesus would just take over. And God, that our minds wouldn't be limited by our own thinking of how you work or how you should work or the way we like for you to work. God, don't let us get bound up in tradition, the way we sing songs, whether we lift our hands or don't lift our hands, whether we sing slow songs or fast songs. Father, help us to to get past our hang-up with forms, because we're all hung up with forms. All of us, the church in America, Lord, is so hung up on forms when we need to be looking at the substance and falling in love with the substance. And God, help us not to over- overcorrect that that we don't realize also that the forms we practice should be honoring to you help us god not to just have knee jerk reactions like we're so like i'm so like we're all so keen to do we just we just react instead lord let us live in your presence seek your wisdom lord if we could just be as wise as stephen and as brave as stephen god what a powerful church we'd be so lord i thank you for the time we've had this morning we pray now as we sing this last song to you that you would be glorified and praised as we go out of here, Lord, today. We do our Bible study, and then we go out of here, Lord. May we honor you in everything we do, in every interaction we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.